So this is going to be a bit of a different episode, but uh, really, really helpful and really interesting, I think. We're going to be talking about John Milton's Paradise Lost, but uh, we're also going to be talking about Lil Nas X, okay? (laughs) So Lil Nas X, um, the rapper who put out those devil sneakers and also a, a really, really awful satanic music video that coincided with those sneakers. So uh, we're going to talk about all of that. It's going to be really interesting, so stick around. Welcome back to the Bible School Podcast, everyone. My name is Ian Brown. I'm your host, and thanks for joining me on another edition of the show. So yeah, we got a fun one today. This is going to be a little bit out of the norm for what I usually do on this podcast. Um, If you've been listening to the past 35 episodes, there's um, an expectation, I guess, that I've created for myself of the kind of content that I produce. Uh, I usually stay within my parameters of biblical theology and church history. But today, I'm going to step outside of the box a little bit. And, you know, it's not the first time I've done this. Um, I think episode 10 of the show, I did an episode about uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, myth and what they thought of um, as myth. And I think that was a really interesting episode. It's honestly one of my personal favorites of all the episodes I've done on this show. So I, it's this is not unprecedented for me to step outside the box a little bit. We've done it before. And I think this is going to be um, really important, what we're talking about today. It's going to be very valuable for understanding where we are at as a a culture in this nation. Um, I'm sure most of you heard about this either on social media or on the news, but a few weeks before uh, the Easter holiday, um, Easter 2021, a very popular a hip-hop artist called Lil Nas X put out a custom Nike sneaker in collaboration with a certain company. And there was a whole big hubbub. Uh, Nike actually had to sue (laughs) this other company to get the sneakers off the market because they didn't want to have anything to do with the sneakers. Um... But yeah, it was a whole crazy thing on the internet. They produced 666 pairs of these custom sneakers, Lil Nas X and this uh, other company. And these shoes, they're basically a shrine to Satan. Like they're a a walking shrine to the devil. And honestly, if you ask me, I think Lil Nas X kind of played himself since the devil is under our feet. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help but sneak that joke in. That's neither here nor there for the moment. The point is, these custom sneakers, they are rife with satanic imagery. 666 pairs were produced. 666 is the number of the mark of the beast from the book of Revelation. Um, These shoes, they're all black and red with pentagrams on them. And uh, there's actually a scripture reference on these shoes as well. Luke 10, 18 where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So these shoes are rife with satanic imagery. They were even injected with like an ounce or two ounces. I'm not sure how much, but they were injected with 
human blood. Right. <laughs> I wish I were kidding. Human blood. Pretty sick stuff. So if that wasn't bad enough already, coinciding with uh, his Devil Shoe collaboration, Lil Nas X released a song called Montero, and the music video for this song, Montero, um, he, he put out a music video, and it was saturated with like really explicit and satanic imagery. Um, he basically gives Satan a lap dance in the music video. Um, I wish I were joking, but <laughs> unfortunately I'm not. Um, now, normally, I, I'm not the type of guy to get all up in arms about music videos and um, whatever, you know, things like that. I, I expect sinners to act like sinners, basically. That's always been my position. Why be surprised when sinners act like sinners? So when I first heard about all this, I initially uh, had a, a little chuckle and I dismissed it. I chalked it up to business as usual, right? Just another tired attempt to grab attention in a postmodern, post-Christian, pornography, inundated, stupefied culture, right? Released just in time to make a mockery of the most holy day in the Christian faith. Well, I was wrong, or partially wrong, because what I just said is pretty accurate, but but it's also more than that. It's more than just another tired attention grab. The symbolism of the devil's shoe and the satanic Montero video reveals a very sophisticated system of, of meaning. And this is particularly worrisome because Lil Nas X's target audience is like, young people. And I say that like I'm an old person, I'm only 28, but like like Lil Nas X is his demographic is like really really young people, like younger than me. If you spent any amount of time on social media in 2019, any time at all, you might remember a smash hit song called Old Town Road performed by Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus. And it was a smash hit. And it was a smash hit for a reason. It was a lot of fun. That song was a lot of fun. It was unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. It was a weird mix of like country and hip-hop. And my goodness, was it catchy. It was so catchy. It was everywhere. It went viral. It got a ton of time on the radio. Right? It became a meme. It became a meme. Kids were singing it. They were singing it and dancing around at summer camps and birthday parties all throughout the summer of 2019. That song, Little, uh, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X, it captured the attention of that young demographic, and Lil Nas X became a household name for kids. And as of now, Montero, the music video for Montero, it has 161 million views on YouTube. So don't think for a second that a bunch of 40 and 50-year-olds are jamming out to Lil Nas X. They're not. The lion's share of the views are going to be from people my age and younger, much, much younger. And like I said, I'm not that old. Now remember, I said I initially dismissed all of this as just another lame attention grab. Well, two things changed my mind on that. One is I happened to see a, a snippet 
of the music video while scrolling through Instagram, and it was more horrific than I originally thought. And then number two, I came across an article about uh, the, the sneaker, the Satan sneaker, the devil shoe, that mentioned that on the inside of the box was written a quote, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, me, being the literature nerd that I am, I immediately recognize that quote. It's a quote from Satan in the epic poem Paradise Lost, written by John Milton. And Milton is one of those guys that a lot of people know by reputation, but few have read. Outside of maybe having to read Paradise Lost for like an English lit class, many people aren't necessarily too familiar with Milton these days. And this really clued me into the sophistication of what Lil Nas X was doing, whether he knows it or not. So to truly understand what Lil Nas X is promoting rather effectively, I might add, in Montero, we have to understand first John Milton and his portrayal of Satan in Paradise Lost because Lil Nas X invokes that in his uh, in his branding and his marketing for the shoe and the music video. So uh, before we actually talk about Paradise Lost and Satan as a character in Paradise Lost, let me give you a little background on John Milton, the author. Milton was an Englishman born in 1608. He was also uh, what we would call today a Puritan. Puritans were this sect of Protestant Christianity that earnestly desired and called for a stripping down of tradition in the church. They wanted the church to move away from the authority of the Pope, obviously, but even beyond that, they wanted nothing to do with uh, the the ornate art and decoration and liturgies of Catholicism. Now, in conjunction with that, Milton was also a revolutionary. He was part of the Puritan Revolution, which rebelled against King Charles I during the English Civil War. And this war, the English Civil War, is an important backdrop to Paradise Lost and, from, and Milton as the, the experience he had being part of it colored the composition of the poem. Now, the King of England at the time was Charles I, and his father was King James. The King James, right? The King James who sponsored the translation of the Bible into English. Well, King James, during his rule, he asserted and firmly established within England what is called the divine right or the divine right of kings. This is actually a concept that goes way back in the English consciousness. It can be sort of traced in different writings back to the Anglo-Saxons in 600 AD, so it's a very, very old idea. And basically what the divine right meant was that the monarchy was established by God. This system of rule, monarchy, is God's idea, and therefore the king is anointed by God to be king, and he has the right to rule unhindered by men. The king only answers to God. So that, that's the divine right that Charles' father, King James, established. 
Now, sometime after Charles I takes the throne, he decides he wants to extend the influence and the practices and the policies of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, into Scotland. He has a problem, though. He's pretty much broke. The crown had no money due to lavish royal living, but also due to very expensive wars from the previous Tudor era. In order to fund his foray into Scotland, Charles has to go to Parliament for the necessary finances. And something important to understand here is that Parliament back then was nothing like the British Parliament of today. The Parliament at this time in history was just a group of aristocrats who served at the king's pleasure. And they did this in two ways. First, by offering their advice and counsel to the king, and secondly, by collecting taxes for the crown. So they didn't have any real power in the sense of Parliament today, but they did have some influence. And they exerted every ounce of that influence, and then some, by denying King Charles I's request to set and collect taxes. Not surprisingly, Charles was outraged. He saw their denial as an infringement on his divine right as a monarch. And his reaction to the Parliament's defiance was to completely disband it. Charles gets rid of Parliament and he starts levying a bunch of new taxes all on his own. Around this time, a fellow named William Laud, who was a friend of King Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury, began to enact some doctrinal and practical reforms within the Church of England. And these reforms were hugely unpopular, especially among the Puritans who saw it as a return to the popery of the Catholic Church. King Charles didn't help matters either by being married to a really devout Catholic woman, Queen Henrietta Maria. The queen was reported to have heard the mass pretty much every day. When the Puritans began to write articles and pamphlets in opposition to these reforms within the Church of England, the government censored them. The persecution of the Puritans even reached the point of them being whipped, mutilated, and thrown in prison. So these extremely unpopular religious reforms and the accompanying persecution combined with a heavy tax burden and an unpopular war in Scotland, all of that combined became too much for the English people to bear, and they eventually demanded for a reconstituted parliament to serve as a check on the monarchy. There became this huge public demand in England for the monarchy, or I'm, excuse me, for the parliament to come back. And Charles I, he concedes to this. He reassembles parliament. Only this time, Parliament is more than a group of aristocrats serving at the king's pleasure. Parliament is now a, a bona fide alternative source of power and authority in England. The downward spiral into war becomes pronounced as the Parliament arrests some of the king's closest friends and advisors, including the Archbishop of Canterbury. In response to these arrests and also in response to some very 
very bold the demands that Parliament put on the crown, Charles I barged into the House of Commons and attempted to arrest several members in June of 1642. By August of that same year, the English Civil War was fully on. Battle standards had been raised, it was Parliament on one side and the monarchy on the other. The Puritans, of course, backed Parliament in fighting against royalist forces. This was their chance for revolution, to depose a king who mistreated and censored them. The Puritan Revolution reached its height in 1649 when Charles I was tried for treason and ultimately beheaded. This was a huge, huge deal, especially in a country that had a long-standing tradition of the monarch being anointed by God to rule. And now, all of a sudden, that's gone. The monarchy is gone. There is no king. The Puritan Parliament held power, and Oliver Cromwell was made the ruler of England as Lord Protector and Commander-in-Chief of Parliament. And John Milton had a hand in all of this. He was part of it. In fact, he even wrote in defense of the regicide, the killing of a king for political purposes. Any joy, however, Milton might have had because of his side winning the English Civil War, it didn't take long to go away. He eventually began to realize that the world he helped create through revolution wouldn't be able to live up to the puritanical utopian ideals he stood for. It didn't take long after the Puritans gained power for them themselves to start engaging in the kinds of behavior he despised in the monarchy. And this is true of every political project with utopian ideals. It eventually starts acting the same way as the thing it detests. We're seeing this a lot with the modern-day woke movement and progressive politics. We see it. It's like, my body, my choice, right? Popular slogan among more liberal types, and that it, it's all well and good when we're talking about abortion, but when, when it comes to COVID vaccines, like, I'm sorry, you don't get a choice. So again, we see every political project with utopian ideals that eventually starts acting the same way as the thing it detests. Milton has to reckon with this in the 1640s and 50s as the Puritan government that he helped establish and is a part of increasingly acts with the same despotism of the monarchy they overthrew. And the whole grand Puritan vision that Milton had eventually sees its ultimate collapse when the monarchy is restored. Charles II, who was exiled into France, comes back to England and reestablishes the monarchy. Once the monarchy was restored, Milton narrowly escaped being executed for his public uh, support and defense of the regicide. It was a very harrowing experience for him. On top of that, it's around this time that Milton's second wife and his infant daughter pass away. So he's grieving their deaths on top of seeing his government collapse and his life being in danger. And to add to his sorrow, he's also going blind. In fact, by 1652, Milton's vision was completely gone. All of that, all of that, that sorrow is the context in which Milton composes Paradise Lost, right? His revolution is collapsed. 
his wife and his baby daughter uh, have died. His life has been in danger and he's lost his sight. That's the context in which Milton composes Paradise Lost. And we know from Miltonian scholars that, that Milton, he actually had the, the seed idea for Paradise Lost since he was about 19 years old. He had wanted to write an epic poem, like a, a nationalistic epic a la Virgil with ancient Rome. He seems to have had a similar plan for an epic poem about England, Milton also began working on a, a tragedy, a tragic play about the fall of man in, in Christian doctrine, right? This play in some early drafts was called Paradise Lost. In other drafts, it was called Adam Unparadised. So Milton had these two ideas for a very long time, uh, an epic poem, a nationalistic epic, and a tragedy about the fall of man. And as Milton matures, he loses the hope of the Puritan utopia as he loses uh, his loved ones, as he narrowly escapes being executed, as he goes blind, Milton makes a, a decision to sort of combine his two ideas and write an epic about the fall of man. It's a very, very sorrowful admission in some ways, a sorrowful admission from an ex-revolutionary that the world is more complicated and broken and fallen than political movements and utopian idealists would care to admit. Now, I'm going to spare you explanations about Milton's use of blank verse and the poem's structure and how it fits into the epic traditions of Homer and Virgil and Dante. I love all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. I could talk about it. But there are plenty of other places you can go to for that, people who could talk about it better than I. And it really isn't what this podcast is about. Remember, I've gone through all this history of England and Milton's life because it informs his depiction of Satan. That's what we're driving at here. Okay, Paradise Lost is a creative retelling of the biblical accounts of not just the fall of man, but also the fall of Lucifer or Satan. And something important to note here is that Milton takes a lot of liberties in Paradise Lost. Like I said, it's a, a creative retelling. And even though his inspiration is Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, along with Revelation 12 and a few other scriptures, the poem is really more a product of Milton's imagination. The main characters, God, Satan, Adam, Eve, they're all portrayed differently than they are in the Bible. right? God the Father is written to be kind of a, a distant regal ruler by Milton. God's speeches are a bit dull. They're not really poetic at all. He doesn't deal with Adam and Eve directly. Rather, he sends the sun or the angels to speak with them. Satan, on the other hand, is wildly charismatic in Paradise Lost. Satan speaks with a poetic and grand style of speech, and he's featured much more prominently in the story. And this has led to one of the most popular academic interpretations of Paradise Lost. It originates with a guy named William Blake. Blake, writing towards the end of the 18th century, put forth the theory that the real hero of Paradise Lost is Satan because of the way Milton depicts him. A lot of people have echoed this over the years. This 
inversion of the biblical narrative that casts Satan as the hero. Listen to what Blake writes here, quote, The reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God, and at liberty when of devils and hell, is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. In other words, Milton was too honest. He was too transparent in his writing that even though he might not have realized he was quote-unquote, of the devil's party, he was just too honest in his writing and in his depictions that he betrays himself, basically. And people debate whether it was intentional or not. Perhaps Milton wrote Satan as a sympathetic character because of his own involvement in revolution, in a failed revolution. Here's one example of why people say this. In book two, of Paradise Lost, uh, the scene is a debate among Satan and his demonic host. At this point in the story of Paradise Lost, book two, their rebellion against God has failed and they've been exiled from heaven and they are trying to figure out their next move. The demon Moloch wants to continue their war against God and the heavenly host The demons Belial and Mammon make the case for a resignation to their fate, kind of a a stoic resignation. They've been condemned. They should just make the best of things. But it's Beelzebub, who in Milton's poem is not Satan, but a different character completely. This demon Beelzebub, he makes the suggestion to launch an assault on a new front. He has the idea to go to Earth and launch an assault on Eden and God's newest creation, mankind. This is, of course, the option they go with. But what's interesting about this debate is that there are parallels between the speeches from the demons and Milton's other writings. For example, Milton's uh, pamphlet, Iconoclastes, uh, which is the pamphlet he wrote in support and defense of the regicide, uh, the, the execution of Charles I, A lot of Milton's arguments from Iconoclastes are echoed in Moloch's speech about why they should continue their conflict with God. Milton viewed Charles the way that Moloch views God, as an autocratic tyrant against whom the ideals of freedom must be defended. And this is why Blake claims that Milton was of the devil's party. We call this the the humanist interpretation, humanism is defined as a a system of thought attaching prime importance to the human realm rather than divine matters. When primacy is assigned to human values, you can set your own standard. So when divine or religious values or ethics contradict your own values, a humanistic system of beliefs gives you the right to judge it. Man gets to judge whether God's actions are good or bad, and if man determines that God's actions or judgments are wicked, then man should rebel against God. This is exactly what Satan does and what he convinces Adam and Eve to do as well. And here's why I'm going to disagree with this humanistic interpretation of Milton inasmuch that Milton felt this way or that Milton supported that. I'm not going to deny that Milton is writing Satan and the demons and Adam and Eve in a way where they 
as characters embrace and act out this humanistic philosophy of judging the divine and rebelling against God. They do, obviously. What I'm going to deny, though, is that Milton is making a humanistic point or communicating a humanistic message or saying this is how you should behave. I think Milton casts Satan as the hero of Paradise Lost only to subvert that. We know about Milton's feelings toward the monarchy, and he's writing God as a monarch. Milton rebelled against the monarch and had a hand in overthrowing it in England for a time, only to see his endeavors fail when the monarchy is restored. Paradise Lost is Milton's way of reckoning with the fact that there are certain systems and structures and hierarchies that are just inherent in the world. When we read these speeches from Satan and the demons throughout the poem, we see Milton grappling with the realization that you can't rebel against divine hierarchy and win. You see, as, as Americans, it's a little weird for us to think in these terms since our country started when the founding fathers kicked out the king from the colonies, right? But remember, for an Englishman in the 1600s, rebelling against the king and kicking out the monarchy was tantamount to kicking out God. To put it in more relatable terms for us, there is legitimate rule, right? There are legitimate hierarchies that should be obeyed. This was what Milton was coming to grips with after his experience with revolution and the monarchy. And this is also where I think Blake gets it wrong when he says Milton was in the devil's party and didn't know it. Satan in Paradise Lost has the, the furious desire not to be under authority, even if the authority is divine and legitimate. Milton rebelled against the monarchy because he believed that the monarchy was corrupt, but that doesn't mean that he did not believe in power structures and legitimate systems of rule. He, he believed in that very deeply. Satan, on the other hand, in Paradise Lost, does not share that same conviction, right? Like I just said, he has the, the furious desire not to be under any authority, legitimate or otherwise. And a lot of people find this appealing, yeah? There are those who say, you know, don't let yourself be subjugated or anything like that because that's slavery, and you don't want to be a slave. You want to be free. And you do that. You, you, you are free by being true to yourself, true to your own desires and your own values above anything else. And this is why Milton's Satan is so appealing to people, including Lil Nas X. All right? So we're connecting back to the whole point of this. I will now read probably the most famous speech of Milton's Satan, part of which was incorporated to the branding and the marketing of the devil shoe. Okay, this is book one of Paradise Lost, lines 241 through 264, and it's the character of Satan speaking. Quote, Is this the region, this the soil, the clime, said then the lost archangel, this the seat, that we must change for heaven this mournful gloom for that celestial light. Be it so, since he, who now is sovereign, can dispose and bid what shall be right, 
farthest from him is best, whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. Farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Here at last we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. End quote. This is an important insight for Milton's Satan, that he can turn hell into heaven by just sheer willpower, by believing that it is better. He's essentially saying that this evil place to which I've been banished, hell, this lake of fire, I can turn this place into heaven because here I am free, because I'm not subject to the rule of God. The question then is, is this true? Does Milton believe this to be true? Is it really better to reign in hell than serve in heaven? Is Satan right? And people like Blake would say yes. They'd argue that Milton believes that. But that's not the same thing as rebelling against a human king as Milton did. And this is where I think Blake misses it. Milton rebelled against Charles I, like I said, because he believed the rule of Charles I to be illegitimate. But Milton does believe deeply in the existence of righteous authority, and God is the ultimate righteous ruler. So when Satan sets out to rebel and remake hell into a heaven of his own design, Satan finds the opposite to be true. What happens, essentially, is that Satan is unable to remake hell into heaven, Rather, he figures out that the only thing he can create is hell within himself. Basically, being in hell turns Satan into Satan. This kind of echoes the Bible when it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus. It's not like Pharaoh was going to let the Israelites go, but God was like, well, if he does that, then what am I going to do with all these plagues, right? I've been... I've been waiting to use these, better harden his heart so I don't let a good plague go to waste. No, Pharaoh had already set himself up in opposition to God's plan. So it's at that point, once Pharaoh had already hardened his heart himself and set up uh, himself in opposition to God, it's at that point that God says, okay, you're on. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He strengthens Pharaoh's resolve in order to demonstrate his own might and glory and supremacy with the ten plagues. That's what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Milton's Paradise Lost shows us something similar with Satan. Satan already set himself up to be in opposition to God, and it's his punishment of being exiled in hell that turns him into everything he accuses God of being. The reason for this is that 
God is the creator, and he's ordered his creation a certain way. And when you rebel against God, when you rebel against reality, when you rebel against the way God set things up to work, you end up rebelling against your own good. You're seeing a lot of this in the world today when CNN is on the scene of a riot, but the headline says, fiery but peaceful protest, that's a good example of taking something wrong and saying, no, this is good just because I consider it to be good. I can make this hell into a heaven of my own design, like Satan in in Milton's Paradise Lost. Another example, Cosmopolitan, sometime back, released an issue of their magazine with some very, very overweight people on the cover, and they said, this is healthy. Okay, when you rebel against reality, when you rebel against the way God set things up to work in the world by just willing what you want to be so, the only result of that in in this case is to remain obese and increase your chances for heart disease and vulnerability to coronavirus. It's the opposite of healthy. Just because you say something doesn't necessarily mean it's so. You're rebelling against your own good. This is why the prophet Isaiah says, Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's Isaiah 5.20. And what the prophet condemns in that verse is satanic logic. I use terms on here like postmodern humanism, but I think I... I do a disservice sometimes, or we do a disservice to ourselves when we talk like that too much, because at the heart of it, it, it's satanic logic, right? They do the same things. Postmodern humanism and satanic logic, they both put the individual human self in the judgment seat over God. Satanic logic says that if I can rebel against illegitimate human authority, then No authority is necessarily legitimate. Therefore, I can rebel against the reality that is ordained by God. But the truth of the matter is that I do that to my own detriment. It doesn't mean the people who do this are evil people. All it means is that they've fallen prey to the same satanic logic that Adam and Eve fell prey to. When someone rebels against God-ordained reality, they are also rebelling against their own good, and they only end up in self-degradation. Finally now, we come back to Lil Nas X. The obvious connection between Lil Nas X and Milton, as I mentioned before, is the quote, which went along with the sneaker, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Alongside that, though, we have the song Montero and the music video for it, which is rife with symbolism designed to indoctrinate audiences with satanic logic. Now, just for the sake of clarity, Montero is not only the name of the song and the music video, but it's also the real name of Lil Nas X, and I will be using both of those names interchangeably. 
The music video for Montero takes place in a world inhabited by different versions of Lil Nas X. In the song, he sings and he raps about his obsession and intimate encounter with another man who has the same name as him, Montero. In fact, the phrase, call me by your name, is the alternate title of the song and is repeated throughout. At the beginning of the video, a narrator says these words, quote, In life, we hide the parts of ourselves we don't want the world to see. We lock them away, we tell them no, we banish them, but here we don't, welcome to Montero, end quote. So what you see in this music video is an exploration and celebration of the self. It's all about pride and self-love. In speaking to his lover with the same name, Montero says, I'm not phased, only here to sin. If Eve ain't in your garden, you know that I can. This brings us to a scene in the video that takes place in what's supposed to be the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve combined into one character, played, of course, by Lil Nas X. On the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there are inscribed some words written in Greek. And these words are a quote from Plato's Symposium. It reads, After the division, the two parts of man, each desiring his other half. This is referencing ancient Greek mythology. When the first humans were created, the way the ancient Greeks tell it, they were created with double of everything. Okay, so two heads, four arms, four legs, so on and so forth. The story goes on that Zeus became so fearful that the humans would grow too powerful, and as a preventative measure, he split them into two parts. In doing so, however, a deep yearning within humans to rejoin the person they were separated from was created. Thus, Zeus condemned humanity to spend their lives searching for their other half. And this type of thinking has filtered its way into the popular culture, yeah? One of the best examples is in the movie Jerry Maguire with uh, Tom Cruise. There is a scene where Tom Cruise's character is trying to win back Renee Zellweger, and he says the famous line, You complete me. That's straight out of Greek myth and Platonic philosophy, the idea that you find your fulfillment in your lover, in your soulmate, in your other half. Of course, in Christianity, we say that it is our spiritual union with Christ that completes and fulfills us as humans, and marriage and romantic relationships, it, the, it's meant to be a living example of the love between Christ and his church. So in Montero, the appropriation of this Greek myth combined with the biblical imagery communicates something totally different. The video goes on to have a serpent appear in the tree of knowledge, and as the snake slithers its way down the tree, it takes on the form of an alien-human hybrid, which, again, is also played by Lil Nas X. And the serpent then gets uh, a bit lascivious, let's say, with the version of Lil Nas X in the Adam and Eve role. So what's going on here? If Greek myth and philosophy 
posits that human fulfillment is found in your other half, and Christianity teaches that human fulfillment is found in union with Christ, then Montero is telling us that human fulfillment is found in yourself. This whole Garden of Eden scene is depicting a desire for a solipsistic world, for a world where everything is contained in oneself. Milton wants a world to be made in his own image, free from the typical restraints of reality and hierarchy set up by God. There's a great book about this by a theologian named Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in that book, Carl Truman, he talks about the nature of identity, and his basic proposition is this, that most of the failures of the West over the last half century or so is due to a false definition of what constitutes the self. Kids are a really good example. I don't have any children myself, not yet anyway, but I have volunteered in children's ministry. Okay, And, And one thing you learn being around kids is that kids are cute and sweet and lovable, but they're also crazy. (laughs) Okay? They're also crazy. That's why parents have to raise their kids. That's why you send your kids to school. That's definitely why you bring them to church, because you have to civilize them. You have to ground children in a framework of values and rules, and as children interact with that framework, with the system of values and rules put down by society from the family level on up to the church level and the community level and then the national level, identity grows out of those interactions. And the more you interact with those systems of values, the better you get at being a son, being a daughter, being a Christian, being a citizen, being a husband or a wife, and on and on it goes. The contemporary version of self is basically the opposite of that. The culture, the world, tells us that the true meaning is not found in those interactions between you and a system of value. Rather, true meaning and fulfillment is found in your authentic self. And any constraint that you don't like is a threat to your happiness. Think about biology, right? A man says he feels like a woman. And that's his true authentic self. So even an objective metric like biology becomes a threat to this person's happiness and fulfillment. This is satanic logic. That's the same thing as being vastly overweight and saying, no, this is healthy. This is the kind of thinking that is being promoted in Montero. As the video goes on, Lil Nas X tells his self-named lover that he wants to commit, to speak in the, the broadest terms possible here, he wants to commit a sexual act with him that doesn't have anything to do with procreation. So again, we have this image of solipsistic yearning and sterility. Montero's imagination is taken up in places of immense pleasure, but it doesn't do anything to produce life or body or or community, its only product is loneliness. 
Lil Nas X goes on to rap about how he wants to commit this sexual act with people that he's envious of. These are two cardinal sins of Christianity, right? Lust and envy. Montero wants to corrupt those he is envious of and bring them under his own power, thus embracing the pattern of satanic revolution. In Milton's Paradise Lost, the reason why the character of Satan rebels in the first place is because he is envious that God elevated the Son to a higher position than him. This is why he continues to rebel by corrupting Adam and Eve. He's envious of their special position within creation, and he wants to bring that under his own domain. Going back to the music video now, sticking with the scene in the garden, remember I said that the serpent takes on the form of an alien-human hybrid. And this is also the imagery of a lot of conspiracy theories, right? Aliens... Lizard people, everything from QAnon to ancient aliens on the History Channel. They talk about this kind of stuff. And it's possible that Lil Nas X is using this imagery as a spiteful jest. On the internet, we'd call it trolling. But even if that is so, which I suspect it is, there's still something else going on here. Even if Lil Nas X is just trolling religious QAnon types... For the outraged publicity he knows that he'll get, there's still a reason these specific images and symbols are employed. This is about attention, no doubt, but the things that bring you attention in an oversaturated attention economy are not arbitrary. Now, whether or not Lil Nas X is an actual Satanist, I couldn't say. Maybe he's deep into the occult, or maybe he's just trolling and considers this, like, performance art. I don't know. I don't have access to his true beliefs. What I do know, however, is that the point of all of this, the, the imagery and the symbolism used to gain attention and increase fame, those are indicators of where we are at as a society and culture. And observing this can help us understand what in the world is going on? As the video continues, after Montero is seduced by the serpent in the garden, the scene switches to a coliseum. We see Montero bound and being judged by cross-dressed versions of himself. He's then stoned by other dusty-looking zombie-like versions of himself, and he's finally killed. Montero then ascends into the sky where we see a, a shadowy angel figure waiting for him. And as he's ascending, a pole or a spear shoots up from below. Montero grabs a hold of the spear and slides down like a pole dancer into hell. I wish I were kidding. <laughs> I really do, but I'm not, unfortunately. This whole scene is an inversion of the Archangel Michael and the Dragon. In medieval Christianity, there was a very popular iconography of the Archangel Michael pinning down the dragon, which is Satan, uh, with a spear. It comes from Revelation 12, where the Apostle John writes about a war in the heavens. Satan led his angels against the Archangel Michael and the heavenly host, Michael is ultimately victorious, throws the devil down to the earth, 
along with all of the rebellious angels. Like I said, medieval Christian art liked to depict this as an image of Michael pinning down the dragon with a spear. Well, in Montero, instead of a spear coming down to subdue evil, a spear comes up from hell to entice with evil. So as Montero slides down the spear like he's on a stripper pole, he's actually recreating the first part of the video. Montero was seduced by the serpent slithering down the tree of knowledge. Now he is acting out the role of the serpent slithering down the pole into hell where he will seduce Satan himself. And this is certainly the most obscene part of the entire video, which is really saying something because it's been bad enough already. But it's at this point where Lil Nas X seduces Satan, again played by himself, with a lap dance. Montero proceeds to simulate a sex act with Satan, only to then come up behind the evil one, break his neck, and take his horns, claiming the devil's crown for himself. Now, the media coverage of this music video has predictably been all about the religious rights outrage. Christians are falling into a new satanic panic, a la the 1980s, all that garbage. The media says we're too stupid to recognize the provocative and playful social message that is actually quite positive. I heard one social media personality, um, an influencer, I guess you would call them, say that the message of the Montero video is a positive message about finding strength in yourself, whoever that is. And it's like, no, duh. You know, that's exactly the whole issue. Christians aren't too stupid to recognize the provocative message. It's just other people are too stupid to recognize that it, the message is actually a problem. Here's the thing. If you ask any Satanist if they believe in an actual, like, supernatural being called Satan, they'll say no. Like an Anton LaVey type of Satanist. They don't actually believe in the devil. It's like the famous quote from Kevin Spacey's character in the movie The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Ken Ami, who's a, an author, follows that up with a quote himself that says the second greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he is the good guy. This is what Satanism is all about. This is the, the subtlety of Satanism. Most Satanists would actually consider themselves atheists. So it's not about worshiping the devil for them in the same way that we as Christians worship God. Rather, they see Satan as a plucky rebel hero with a furious desire for self-autonomy who casts down the restraints put on him by God. This is the enemy's tactic. He doesn't seduce people into worshiping him directly. He gets people to worship themselves. This is why we have the idea of making a deal with the devil. People are so enamored with the thought of living their best lives that they'll do anything, 
even if they know there will be hell to pay sometime in the future. This is the subtle nature of Satanism. It's about pride and assigning more importance to yourself than to God. Remember that Milton Satan tried to willfully turn hell into a heaven of his own making. Lil Nas X sliding into hell, twerking on Satan, and then killing him is the same type of utopian absurdity. If you have close friends or family members who have dealt with substance abuse, then you know this firsthand. But giving into your basest desires and whims isn't going to empower you, it's going to enslave you. So in the Montero video, I mentioned how it ends with Lil Nas X putting on Satan's crown of horns on his own head. We can understand this as him completing the final stage of rebellion and revolution. The problem is that Montero's only claim to the throne and to the crown of horns is violence and revolution. If you remember the first movie in the Star Wars prequel trilogy, The Phantom Menace, there's a scene where Jar Jar Binks, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Qui-Gon Jinn are in a submarine being chased by a sea monster, only for another sea monster to come along and eat the one that was chasing them. When that happens, Qui-Gon says this great line about how there's always a bigger fish. In the case of Montero, there's always another pole-riding, twerking revolutionary next in line coming to take the crown. When you live this way, when you live elevating yourself above God, living according to your basest pleasures and whims, rebelling against the realities and the systems that God has ordained, you do it to your own detriment. You never actually win when you live that way. Rather, you find yourself participating in a constant cycle of chaos and violence against yourself. John Milton's character of Satan in Paradise Lost warns us about the consequences of pride and self-glorification. Montero, on the other hand, celebrates it. So even if it was intended as a troll on the part of Lil Nas X, the radical, explicit, satanic imagery is meant to provoke and indoctrinate young audiences into a system of value that assigns more importance to yourself, to your own whims, to your own desires, rather than to God. It's antichrist to its core, it's satanic logic, and if you live that way, you do so against your own good. All the things we've talked about in this episode lie at the root of many of the hot topics we're facing in the culture today. If you spend any amount of time on any social media, Twitter, let's say, you're probably going to run into some radical feminist tweeting about how great their abortion was. Hashtag shout your abortion. That's like that's an actual social media campaign. Shout your abortion. Celebrate how great it was. I'm not talking about women who were victims of sexual assault, let's say, and then they make a gut-wrenching decision to get an abortion. That's an issue that should be addressed with a lot of love and care. I'm talking about people who are having casual hookups and using abortion as a safety net to keep their lives and careers intact. 
People who do that are elevating themselves to a place higher than God and making a deal with the devil. All right, I need to wrap this episode up. But as I do, I want to end on a positive note. Because I honestly believe that Lil Nas X gave us a blessing in disguise. His use of satanic imagery exposes for us the true nature of contemporary culture. And this is where I believe the enemy has played himself. See, you can't use satanic imagery without at least acknowledging its opposite, the Christian story. And even though Satanism only exists where Christians have failed, it's still a retelling of Christian truth if you bring attention to its opposite. Eventually, the upside-down, rebellious world of Montero will have to flip back. And perhaps falling for the rage bait isn't helpful, but if Christians can look at music videos like Montero and call attention to its opposite, we can help people find true freedom. Freedom is not found in your authentic self, as Montero preaches and as Satan wants you to believe. True freedom is only found in Christ. When we come to God in faith and repentance, we are made free from the chains of our sinful impulses and desires. It's only when we submit ourselves to God, take up our cross, and follow Christ by emulating his story of self-sacrifice that the vicious cycle of self-promotion and glorification leading to rebellion, revolution, and self-degradation is broken. The first Adam was tempted by Satan in the garden and gave in. He put his own desires above his relationship with God. The last Adam, Christ, was also tempted in a garden. Jesus' human impulse was to avoid the pain of the crucifixion. He even prayed to the Father, let this cup pass before me. But he finished that up by saying, not my will, but thine be done. Christ did not give in to the temptation, rather he submitted to the Father. In pride, the first Adam was cast out. In humility, the last Adam, Christ, was exalted. If you try to gain freedom by being your authentic self to the point of rebelling against the way God has set reality up to be, then you will only find enslavement. But if you make yourself a slave to Christ, if you humble yourself and submit your desires to God, that is when you will find true freedom and fulfillment and flourishing in this life. I'll end with James chapter 4 verse 6. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Well, thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, a little different from what I normally do, but I really thought it was too important to just let go. If you found this episode helpful and you want me to tackle more cultural topics, or maybe you're interested in how other literature and stories fit into a biblical worldview, like how we talked about Milton's Paradise Lost, then let me know. Email me at bibleschooledpodcast at gmail.com. If there's enough interest, I'd be happy to add more episodes like these into the repertoire of what we talk about on this show. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. 
Until next time, be blessed.